0: And welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I had a long conversation with Dr. David Pizarro. David is a social psychologist at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. His primary research interests are in moral judgment and the effects of emotion on judgment. David is also the co-host of a podcast called Very Bad Wizards, which typically involves discussions on moral philosophy, moral psychology, and neuroscience. One of the thoughts that stuck with me after talking with David is how important it is to acknowledge the link between our body and our thoughts. So for example, think of how you might feel intense stomach pain when someone tells you something very upsetting. Your brain and your body are communicating with each other to give you the message that whatever is happening at that moment should be avoided in the future. This link means that information from very primitive parts of the brain, such as the emotion of disgust, can have an influence on things we wouldn't expect, like political preferences, or attitudes about entire groups of people. This idea is closely tied to a concept in psychology known as dual process systems, which I briefly mention in our talk. It describes the idea that our brain uses two distinct types of information to make judgments and decisions. Colloquially, you might think of this distinction as the head versus the heart reason and logic as compared to experiences and emotion. I think the take home message from David's work is clearly not that we should remove emotions from our moral judgments, but rather to understand where emotions come from and to develop an awareness of how these emotions can lead to bad decisions or judgments that are inconsistent with more thoughtfully constructed values. I hope you find our chat as enjoyable as I did. Okay, I'm here with David Pizarro. Thank you so much for uh, joining me here today.
1: Thank you for having me, Ryan. Uh,
0: So your research uh, focuses uh, around moral judgments. So particularly how human beings form moral judgments, what information they use when they form these moral judgments. Uh, Why don't we just start off? by why don't you just give an overview of the categories of information that humans use when they form moral judgments
1: sure sure that's a good question because um i think a lot of people just assume i mean psychologists here i'm talking a lot of people just assume well moral judgments are just the judgments you make about right and wrong right like that's they come fully formed but in reality there's a whole host of information that we use and it kind of matters even what kind of moral judgment you're talking about. So, <clears throat> for instance, uh, one of the things that I like to study in moral judgment is is moral responsibility. So h- are people blameworthy for something that they did? So, you know, if I uh, hit you completely by accident, um, I've harmed you, but most people would say, oh, I'm not blameworthy for it. That's completely accidental. And what they mean by that is that that somebody didn't have... The intention to harm. They didn't have control over their actions when they did it. Um, so when we when we make judgments of moral responsibility, this type of moral judgment, we're often using information about control and intentionality, and you know just uh, the mental state of the individual. Like maybe you intended it, but maybe you only intended it because you were you know on LSD and you thought I was uh, a demon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so so we use a lot of social information or information about an agent's actions their mental states um similarly when we're making judgments of right and wrong we're, all, we're often concerned about whether or not an action causes harm whether it violates a norm um uh, there there's a whole host of information that goes into what feels like a really quick and automatic judgment
0: so are there is this in your opinion, very st- a straightforward process? Or uh, are we, are, are there lots of little situational, you know, nuance to our moral judgment? Because you're talking about, we're, we're trying to, uh, we're trying to evaluate someone's intent, right? Yeah. So yeah. how does that, how does that play out?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, as with any social judgment, I think it gets very complicated, so uh, when we're looking at, for any given person, does somebody, does any other given person think that they are morally blameworthy, and you're going to get a whole s- host of things that are involved in that, like, uh, what do I know about this person already, do I like them, do I dislike them, are they a member of my group or on some sort of outgroup, and then on top of that we might have to make judgments of intentionality and control, and if I don't like you, for instance, um, which is not true, right? Really, this <laughs> <It's> um, hypothetically. <laughs> hypothetically, if I already don't like you and I see you do something sort of ambiguous, so so let's say, um, let's say you do hit me, and it it looks like it might have been by mistake. Let's say we're playing a a, a game of basketball, um, and and I get an L a stiff elbow in the chest from you. Um, I have to make some sort of judgment, like, well, was that intentional or wasn't? And there might be a bunch of reasons why I think that you did do it on purpose. And uh, there might be reasons why I think you didn't do it on purpose. If I already don't like you or if we've already had a few exchanges in the game, something that was completely accidental on your part, I might judge to be completely intentional. Um, So so there are always going to be all these social forces and cognitive forces that are acting on any given judgment so you're going to get individual differences some people for instance seem to see intentionality in the world a lot more so um i have a a dear relative whose name i've stopped mentioning (laughs) she got mad at at me um who you know every time somebody cuts her off in a car she thinks really (laughs) she gets very angry she says oh you know this this asshole just you know and did it on purpose and i think to myself well did they really do it on purpose because sometimes when she's in a hurry and she has to switch lanes very quickly she cuts people off and i say didn't you realize that you cut that person off and she says yeah but no i really had to get to the exit so it wasn't my fault you think well it's interesting that you see the world around you in this sort of malicious intentional way but but you're very quick to forgive your own actions so, so there's a lot of variability, which makes the study of moral judgment in general hard. You know, not to mention all the cultural norms that might vary across cultures. Um, so, so it's yeah. complicated. But, but you know, I can't, I couldn't sit here and say I study moral judgment if I didn't think there were some things that are stable across individuals, across time and culture. You know.
0: Yeah. Uh, so it sounds, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is there's. Um you know, it, specifically with this kind of example of someone who's attributing personal blame to somebody else as a pattern of behavior, it seems as though um, there, there's a lot of uh, emotion going into it, sort of an automatic, automatic judgment. And, uh, you know, for the listeners, you know, there's this interesting theory in social psychology that talks about dual process systems. Uh, if you want to do, do some research, you can... Uh, look, look at Daniel Kahneman's Thinking, Fast and Slow. That's a, a good start for this kind of concept. But basically, the idea is that that we ha- we have two cognitive systems. One of them is dealing with logic and reason, and the other is dealing with sort of all the emotions and experiences we've had. That's right. Um, so, uh, how does how does that dynamic play into our moral judgments?
1: Yeah, um, as you point out, a lot of these moral judgments are quite emotional and that's because you know emotions are basically things that signal that there is a priority in our environment right so there is something that's important that we need to pay attention to and people violating moral norms are important you know they did you harm me intentionally that that matters so of course my emotions are going to be involved um You know, and so, so we get angry when we see violations of moral norms and um, especially when somebody has done it to us and those emotions can, can be rational. I mean, so there, there is a way in which you could say, well, here, cognition and emotion, even though they're two systems, you know, maybe one influences the other in a good way, but often. Uh, the emotions sort of carry the weight and, and there's some evidence even that they distort um, our cognitions, our judgments um, in these cases. So, so kind of along the lines of what I was mentioning before, if I already don't like you, I might be more likely to get angry with you if you harmed me and that, mi- that anger might in turn influence how intentional I think that, that harm was. Um, and so this is you know, this is the case for a whole host of moral judgments, because, again, they are a domain that's important to us. Um, We often have emotions like anger getting involved and emotions like disgust, which is another thing uh, that I study. So yeah. would
0: you go so far as to say that that we we shouldn't? we should run from emotions when developing moral judgments cuz it sounds like there's something useful there it's just limited in its capacity right
1: yeah you know i find that it's it's helpful to think in terms of analogies where you think about say the role that fear plays right so um fear is a an emotion that is elicited when there is something dangerous in the environment, right? So I, I see I see a snake in the grass, and I get afraid. What that fear does is it, it shifts our attention. It prioritizes the uh, the kind of information that we're looking for in the environment, right? It says nothing else matters right now. It gets your 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 the bodily systems involved in in escape or in fight. It gets those involved. It plays a very important role in motivating. Um, survival behaviors. But that's not to say that it doesn't misfire a whole lot. I mean, you know, all we need to do is think about the the just crippling anxiety that many people feel every day, right? So, so fear can misfire uh, quite a bit. With emotions, I think it's, in moral judgment, it's the same. So you have an emotion like anger that is really, really central to to the practice of you know finding responsibility and blaming others and punishing them and all that stuff is very important for us to maintain a smooth society right we we need to care about the actions of other people this is what it means to belong to a society and so we have all these psychological mechanisms that are really about regulating our own behavior so that we're in line with with society and about regulating other people's behavior so that they stay in line and because of that we're able to you know flourish and cooperate and have friendships and, and business partnerships and and all of this stuff um so those emotions are important if we if we didn't care at all we wouldn't have emotions about it right we would just it would be we wouldn't even need to think about the behavior of others. Um, Yeah. I always tell my, I always
0: tell my students that, that, you know, things like sadness or whatever, you know, again, it's not something you run from. It's a signal, right? And and, it's a signal. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. That, that's a good way of putting it. It's telling, it's telling, uh, the organism, right. In this case, a human being that there's something that needs to be paid attention to now, of course, there are people with anger management problems. There are people who, even people who have uh, the kind of empathy that they can't control, and they end up you know, giving all their money to a homeless person and not have, you know, there, there are all kinds of ways in which otherwise good emotions can misfire and cause some problems. And a lot of researchers have been interested specifically in the problems that these emotions cause and like in instances in which they can make us act in seemingly irrational ways, and sometimes We want the people who are making decisions, say about punishment and blame, like a judge or a jury, we say we want them to be dispassionate. We want them to not uh, involve their emotions too much in their deliberations because we fear that they're going to be biasing and that they're gonna be leading to the wrong judgments. But the truth of the matter is we want some emotions At the very least, we want them to care, to care enough to be there and to pay attention and to try to figure out whether or not somebody's innocent or guilty. Those kinds of emotions, uh, you know, the whole emotional system is motivating for us to do things. In the absence of moral emotions, what you get, unfortunately, is somebody like a psychopath, somebody who doesn't care enough about anybody else.
0: So uh, I want to circle back to uh, to disgust. But you did mention empathy. And I'm curious as to, in terms of how empathy is, let's just say how empathy should or, or, or optimally function in terms of moral judgments. Um, I, I wonder if empathy, if you can have, a, if too much of, of empathy is a bad thing. And, and you mentioned kind of giving all your money away to homeless <laughs> or something like that, uh, specifically in... in uh, where I live in, in downtown Orlando, homelessness is a, a big issue. And when I have, I, I'm having, I find myself having conversations about, about, about this topic a lot. And for, for most people, uh, the first emotion that pops up is, is empathy and, and, uh, and sympathy and wanting to help these individuals by giving them resources or homes. And focusing on like a housing, you know, it's a housing focused solution. Now, then I come around and I look around and I I feel like our city is morally bankrupt for not doing anything immediately. You know, I I have this extreme view that that a homeless person talking to themselves and kind of, you know, whether it's drug related or mental health related or something else, that to me there's it's actually no different from someone bleeding you know profusely from their head it's morally bankrupt to do nothing here right um and but empathy is not that's not driving my reaction so i'm curious is it can can too much like what is the proper role of empathy what is is there a right amount or
1: right i'm not really
0: sure how to answer that
1: it's a it's in some ways it's a million dollar question and something that is sort of debated in 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 the field of moral psychology um Let's take a step back, maybe, and define what most people mean by empathy. I don't want to frustrate your listeners too much because I haven't even defined morality or moral judgment. (laughs) (laughs) And so before I even get there, uh, let me at least take a moment to say when I use the term morality here, I mean a very broad set of judgments about rightness and wrongness um, that usually involve the actions of other people, but not always, and um, that are sort of central to what many have called the problem of human coordination, um, these, these are the kinds of judgments, hopefully, you know, them when you see them, but I mean this broad category by empathy, a lot of people mean, uh, a couple of things, right? So the most common ways of defining empathy are one, to have an emotional reaction that is more appropriate to the circumstances of somebody else than it is to your own circumstances. So for instance, you see a homeless person, you feel terrible for their predicament, you in. Inst- some measure feel you think they might be feeling free, and this m- can motivate you to want to help sympathy so in this emotional sense is often seen as this motivator to uh, to give rise to helping behavior. Um, the other way that people use it is often just taking the perspective of somebody else. And this need not require too much emotion. Um, you can just imagine taking a moment to think about um, I think about who Ryan is and where he grew up and where he went to school and what he has studied. And so what he would know, I'm doing a lot of this in talking to anybody, right? Trying to figure out where they're coming from. In fact, teaching, as you might know, is just one big exercise in trying to get into the head of your students, at least good teaching is, because um, you need to be able to represent somebody's mind and what they know and what they don't know. So people sometimes refer to that more cognitive, uh, more complicated thing as empathy. Um, but the emotional part at least for sure can misfire. Like there's nothing that guarantees that having empathy is going to make you a good person. And so I, we only need to point to some instances in which uh, empathy can be so distressing that what people do is not help, but leave. So, you know, I grew up uh, in, in the 80s and uh, I hate to, to betray my age, But uh, there were a lot of commercials about the Ethiopia famine at the time, right? So there were a lot of commercials where there were just starving Ethiopian kids on TV, you know, obviously at the brink of dying from starvation. And there was always an appeal to give money to whatever charity. Um, Those images could be so distressing that they motivated me, but they motivated me to change the channel. Like they, they, I had to, I was overwhelming and Mm -hmm. there is some, some psychologists refer to this as empathic distress. So there are cases where you feel empathy, where all you want to do is leave the situation because it's distressing you. And so clearly empathy in that case, isn't doing anything good morally. Um, There are other cases where empathy might motivate us to help out people who are, close to us, people who are like us, people who we know, people who we see. And sometimes that can be potentially at the expense of other people who need our help even more. So, you know, classic example is baby Jessica, who was, again, an 80s reference, a little girl who fell down a well this was right at the beginning of CNN. So, you know, CNN was looking for stories to cover in their 24 hour news cycle. So they had all of these cameras, of, you know, showing the rescue attempt for baby Jessica. And what happened was a lot of people across the country were donating money to help the rescue effort. But, you know, this was a local firefighting department, maybe some, some extra people came. came. It didn't require a whole lot of money so they had a ton of this money that they really didn't know what to do with you think about what that money could have done that money could have gone to save a whole bunch of people who were starving or who were you know not in this country who needed our help um, yeah you saw
0: a similar thing with the military when when uh you know there are very specific requirements for military aid and uh at some i'm not sure exactly this is probably you know I don't know mid 2000s. I'm not sure if it was a rock war or something like that. But you know, at some point, the military said, "Like, time out. You got to stop sending stuff because we have to receive <laughs> right. it." Right. And and it's, and and, and yeah. it's kind of one of these examples of a disconnect between you know the, the your first instinct to help and what the uh, you know what what yep. the reality is. Um, I, I mean, my my problem is is that there's, people tend to defend the initial uh, instinct. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting here saying, no, no, like change, like pivot, change, let's do something different. Right. Why, don't, why don't we right. think about this and actually expend energy focusing on, on an optimal solution rather than just casually just going where our emotions or whims you know, take us.
1: Right right you can be easily pulled in the direction of your emotions uh, without really reflecting on whether or not that's where your attention time money should be going and so um, you know when you think about what it means to live in the modern world we are we're living in uh, we have an existence we weren't really prepared for if we're thinking in evolutionary terms so an empathic reaction, might very well be at the heart of our desire to help uh, of our of our um you know basic morality where we're motivated to help other human beings but when we lived in small scale societies if if i saw somebody who needed my help you know there were whatever 100 150 200 people living in in your town um, or your village you help them, you're motivated because you see them in distress and you help them. That's a good thing. That's what glues human beings together. Not, you know, there aren't very many animals who have this. Um, but now we're living in a time and place where we have a bunch of money and time and, and resources that other people may not have. And we have the knowledge that there are a ton of other people who might need our help across the world and we have the means of helping them, right? So there are charitable causes that, that are really good at getting money to the people who are in most need. Our emotional systems aren't that well calibrated, right? We can't, imagine a fear response yeah. that was calibrated, you know, that was calibrated to feel fear for everything on the planet that might be scary, right? right? That it's, that wouldn't it's, work.
0: It's just like, uh, it's it's very, very similar to our ability to be rational—it's the yes. same thing. We, we humans are wildly rational in general, uh, but we have these like blind spots, right? Yeah. And especially like you touched on it already when you extend from a small group to a million. Like we're right. you know humans are bad with number, especially when those numbers get above a couple hundred. Uh-huh. Then it's then it's just a blur, and we have tr- and it kind of paralyzes us in terms of our ability to make decisions, or we just fall back on our emotions.
1: That's right. That's why there are these weird findings that um, showing a picture of one starving kid is better for getting people to donate money than showing a picture of 10 starving kids. What's going on there? Right? Like what? It seems as if we should rationally ramp up our empathy now for 10 starving kids. We're not good at doing that. Our, Our emotional system isn't very good. So we have to keep it in check. But a lot of people... I don't know. They get they get a little offended or upset if you say, um, "Well, you know, you have to. You have to, sometimes you have to downregulate your empathy." They think that what you're saying is we should be a cold moral monster. But really, what you're saying is, "Look, we have the ability to reason, and we have the ability to help out a whole lot of other people in the world. So why not take a moment to reflect whether or not your money should go here or there, or your time should go here or there?" It's just hard to do because we're we're so easily, you know, when we judge other people, we want them to be warm and and caring and moved by the pain and suffering of others. We don't want to think of them as having a spreadsheet that decides what to do. Right. Right.
0: Uh, so let's. Uh, we've talked about empathy now, uh, but a, a lot of your research is centered around a different emotion, uh, which is disgust. So, um, why don't you g- talk a little bit about how disgust relates to forming moral judgments?
1: Yeah, sure. So, disgust is one of the emotions that captured my attention early on. This was in graduate school um, because, you know, there are emotions like empathy and anger that seem obviously social. Empathy is about the pain and suffering of others, anger is about blame and others. They seem to fit nicely with you know the kinds of things that we we talk about when we talk about morality blame and and harm disgust most people who research it who who you know view disgust as one of these basic emotions one of these universal emotions that that everybody experiences that emerge early on in life and that serve an important function that function most people agree is about not eating something or not touching something or not being close to something that might make you sick. So it's very much an emotion that was, uh, whose function it is to avoid bad stuff that make you sick. And this makes sense. This, when you think about what disgust means, like what kinds of things disgust people, um, a lot of bodily (laughs) fluids are disgusting, you know, uh, forgive me for disgusting anybody by even saying these words like uh, blood urine feces pus vomit these are all gross to people because if you see those things coming out of somebody else it might mean that they're sick you should probably avoid them mm-hmm. um and so it seems to serve this really low level you know basic kind of protective function but disgust also excuse me also seems to be involved in a lot of our social judgments. So people will often say um, that things are wrong, certain acts are wrong, and that they're disgusted when somebody performs them. And that's sort of where we started um, with this uh, research was the fact that many people had pointed out that disgust seemed to be an emotion that was recruited in moral judgment. So when you think about, for instance, Arguments that were misogynistic or homophobic often involved some sort of descriptor of that group of people as being gross, right? You just think about Donald Trump talking about Hillary going to the bathroom. Um, mm-hmm. That's just an appeal to the grossness of bodily functions in an attempt to get us to dislike somebody, right? Um, or now, many- is, the, is, yeah.
0: is, the, is this also. Uh, is it the case that, do you think people f- have the biological feeling of disgust when they use it in social contexts, or they're just using language? I'm right. curious.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's one uh, that's kind of debated in the literature right now, because on the one hand, you have things that might be gross for the, like the disease, what we call the pathogen avoidance story of disgust. So yeah. Um, if you tell somebody, oh, David Pizarro uh, has a lot of BO, they might not like me. That's a really efficient, if unjust, but efficient use of like that grossness of like pathogen avoidance disgust. But some people use disgust to refer to something that isn't about disease at all. It seems to be about, about just purely moral stuff. So people will say that a used car salesman who screws you know old people out of their money, um, that that person is disgusting. Now, what do they mean then? Do right. they, uh, right. are they actually <clears throat> feeling grossed out or are they using disgust as a metaphor? You know, yeah, that some is people, interesting. Yeah, some people argue that they are feeling disgust and that disgust has come to uh, play this social role. Other people, including uh, me, have argued that that's just a way we use language metaphorically, that we're not feeling grossed out by a used car salesman or a con artist or, you know, the president's foreign policies we're just using that because it's such a strong negative emotion that it communicates our our disdain our, mm-hmm. and and that it's more like we're feeling angry and we're calling somebody disgusting i don't know what I, do you think
0: <laughs> i i uh, yeah it's uh i i know that uh I don't think it's, it's identical to the, to these kind of biological reactions, but it's, it's definitely, you know, the word I tend to use is visceral. Yeah.
1: Right.
0: I mean, it, it, when, when you think of morally bankrupt people, like I, I you know, uh, my stomach, I, I do feel something in my stomach. Um, huh. But, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to tease out these types of effects, right? I mean, this it's is
1: true. It turns out to be extremely hard because, um we may we often make a disgust face we say we're disgusted right we wrinkle like the disgust face traditionally is this sort of wrinkled nose like oh mm-hmm. like grossed out uh protrusion of the tongue in some cases uh and so so we say we're disgusted by this uh, person's moral behavior we wrinkle our nose or we say it turns my stomach um and so how you know how do i measure disgust if all of those things might be being used metaphorically. Um, Sometimes I talk to people about how showing disgust on your face doesn't necessarily mean you're actually being grossed out. And there is this way that um, sick or disgusting has been co-opted as a term that people use in a positive way. So if like, think about an NBA player playing basketball who has a sick dunk and i have actually a photo of a little animated gif of a of a um basketball player reacting to his teammate's dunk and it's just a classic disgust face it's just Ugh. that's because he's saying oh that was a sick dunk that right. that i you know i think is purely metaphorical i don't think he's actually getting his tum- stomach tr- you know he's not feeling nausea sure. he's just communicating the term sick by making that face yeah um, that's so definitely
0: not the only example of co-opting the, you know these <laughs> this certain specific language you know terms for you know a, a, yeah crossover dribble type type stuff. Yeah. It's like oh he he's, he got burnt or you know right
1: that's right he just that's right
0: yeah uh, it's a that's uh, very interesting. Um, could you uh, so why don't you talk about your um, your experiments looking at uh, at at minute or in terms of minute you have lots of experiments where you manipulate disgust. right right. and and you see how that can can change certain moral judgments
1: yeah so the way that we've studied disgust is in in these two ways one by making people feel grossed out right so manipulating disgust as you say this can be with images or with a smell we often use a smell um uh, a disgusting smell that we have in the lab and we have people uh give us their judgments of other people. So in one experiment, for instance, we actually uh, made the lab on on certain days, we sprayed uh, a nauseous, but like a gross smell in the lab, and we had people fill out um, a questionnaire that was just asking them what they felt about certain social groups. It's what's called a feeling thermometer, and it basically says, you know, from zero being totally cold to hundred being very, very warm. How do you feel about the elderly? Um, how do you feel about African-Americans? How do you feel about gay men or lesbian women? And uh, what we found was, and what we were, we were predicting, um, was that the nauseous smell made people especially uh, negative toward gay men. Actually, and lesbian women, if, if you looked uh, across studies, mm-hmm. um, it made them more home you know, let's call this homophobic. You could argue whether this scale is a scale of homophobia, but but at least colder toward um, toward uh, gay people, and um, but not to, not to the other social groups. So what we argued was that grossing people out with this smell. Uh, got their sort of juices flowing in this disgust sort of way and that there are certain social groups that might be tied to the kinds of things that disgust is especially good at you know we were talking about emotions shifting your attention and focusing um disgust is going to help focus you on things that might get you sick this might include not only uh, gross germy things but uh groups that engage in the kinds of practices that might be risky so uh sexual practices um people who eat food that you're not familiar with or who smell different from you right um and now it just so happens that for most people uh you know the the thought of sex in any way that's not normal for them might gross them out right sex is a domain that that's 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 easily gross for people just think about two people that you find very unattractive having sex um and so (laughs) so we think that you know just the category of of gay people might get people um might get those the disgust might be tagged especially to groups that are characterized by their sexual behavior if that sexual behavior is unlike yours not that there's anything inherently disgusting with gay sex Um, Mm -hmm. um so, well, it does. It does yeah. bring
0: up an interesting, uh, an an interesting point in terms of how how our culture should address these types of um, of, of instances. So, I mean, I've always thought that that uh, that allies of the LGBTQ community, um, it, at least some of them, are are targeting the wrong behavior. In other words. I always thought that, you know, if somebody is, you know, there's somebody who's generally thought of as being homophobic and they, they say that I'm disgusted by gay sex, right. Two men can't handle it. I don't think the target should be to remove the disgust. It should be more targeted at keeping the disgust. I mean, obviously you don't want to, you don't want to encourage, you know, feeling that emotion, but, the target should be not the disgust, but rather their, their public views, how they vote and stuff like that. Because I don't know, I always thought it, it seemed like too much work to undo a very primitive emotion. I don't know if you have thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, no, I, exactly like that. I mean, this, this, this is now a callback to our earlier discussion about the role of reason. Um, look, it might be that certain kinds of sex are disgusting to you. What you have to realize is that um, gay people are people. Their sex is just one aspect of them. It just so happens that they've been categorized this way by society. You know, hopefully we have a society in which we stop categorizing, we stop needing to categorize people um, by their particular behaviors in one domain. Um, But I also tell them, so what if you're grossed out? You know, like I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> think about think about uh, I don't know like I said before to to people you find extremely unattractive having sex you might say that that's disgusting but do you want to legislate or do you do you think that they they should be banned from this or do you think that your disgust has anything to say about their right to do that no that would be silly you know I think picking your nose in public is disgusting but I don't want to ban it you know and I like sure. I certainly don't humans you do that. It and d- again, it does. <laughs> if, this is not to say, you know, like I, for listeners who who just need to hear this, like there really is not, sex is one of those domains where everything could be disgusting or nothing could be disgusting. It just depends on your particular thing. And, right. and so there's nothing inherently disgusting about anybody's sex. It's just that it's one of those domains that's really easy for us to uh to get sketched out by if it's not us i I sometimes tell people you know all sex seems disgusting to me unless i am somehow involved in it either (laughs) (laughs) either fictionally or or in reality
0: (laughs) well yeah and and it seems as though people hide behind you know you hear the term natural a lot like it's a natural like and that that expands pat that's not just in terms of of sexual practices but you know lots of moral judgment seems to have a a little bit of sprinkling of well that's unnatural that's not how that's not how the it it just isn't that way yeah um is is that um so would you say that 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 um that word natural is is kind of tied up into the this emotional system
1: oh absolutely and you don't even have to you know a lot of um a lot of this discussion, especially among social psychologists, seems sometimes targeted at conservatives, right? So because most of us are liberal and we're around liberals, it's very easy to pick on uh, views. I mean, in some cases they deserve to be picked on. But that's not to say that liberals might not have very similar things going on. And when, you, when it comes to the word natural, um, uh, you can find instances of this heuristic, this rule of thumb, that things that are unnatural are bad. You can see that across the political spectrum. So I live in Ithaca, New York, which is a town that is not only liberal, but it's as hippie as, as like you can get. Um, and there are a lot of people who think it's unnatural to genetically modify food. Um, there are some people who think it's unnatural to use uh, vaccines who are liberal. There are people who don't, you know think it's unnatural to put any sort of pesticide or preservative in food. Now, in some cases, these might be right. In some cases, they might be horribly wrong. It's unnatural to cure cancer, right? But that doesn't mean that it's wrong to cure cancer. So that word ends up doing this emotional work that can't, you know, usually is not backed by good reason. That is, if something is wrong and it's unnatural, it's probably not wrong because it's unnatural. It's wrong on some other grounds, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Right or yeah, his, yeah it, it, at least that's because from what we know about the evolution of cognition we know that it, at some point something likely some environmental situation probably put that that structure in our brain in right. some way shape or form, right?
1: Right. That's it's it's not it's not half bad when when you're dealing with things that you are so unfamiliar with that that you need to take a moment and say like is this Quote unquote natural. Well, Ryan, let's just tell the readers the number of unnatural things that we're doing right now. We are speaking to each other in completely different geographical locations through weird microphones that are turning our voices into digital signals, you know, we with have... this
0: fancy electricity stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, this is very, <laughs> uh, yeah, very, very unnatural. <laughs>
1: we are, we are very immoral people, but maybe, but just not because we're doing unnatural things. <laughs>
0: um, So uh, you kind of mentioned a little bit about uh, politics. um, Kind of made me think of how, you know, in in our country we have sort of this progressive political philosophy and conservative. And I mean, in my view, it's kind of an interesting dynamic in the sense that you know, progressive progress. We're supposed to you know look at low hanging fruit in our culture and say we need to change this, change this, and then on the other side conservative we need to hey let's maybe we don't change everything maybe we you know we're thoughtful about some of these areas maybe there's some sort of value in in tradition we should keep keep this stuff um and of course uh your whether what side you fall on kind of intersects with a lot of moral judgments um uh what what are your thoughts on on the role of of sort of the, the principle of, of change versus keeping, you know, keeping old traditions, and how that might relate to morals.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's the way that you you've these differences, I think is on point, especially when it comes to talking about, say, some of the psychological and emotional mechanisms that make somebody either progressive or liberal. So we know, for instance, that I mean, sorry, progressive or, or conservative. We know that people who are on the liberal side of the political spectrum are high in openness to experience, which is a personality trait. It's one of the so-called Big Five. And these are people who are very happy doing novel things that they haven't done before. You know, trying uh, new kinds of food or you know visiting novel places that they've never visited before. Um, Whereas conservatives are low in this, it just, you know, if you can't find the reasonableness of both positions, then I think there's something wrong with you, right? There are a lot of practices that we know work because of years and years, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years of experience. So there's good reason to be wary of changing things that have worked. But on the other hand, there, you know, if you, all you do is things you've done before, then you'll never know the new thing, and you might never actually um, fix some of the bad things that are in society. Um, so it turns out that people who are easily disgusted are also more likely to be conservative. And the, the, the theory that we have about why this is the case is, again, this conservative liberal divide is about uh, risk and novelty. If you if if you could make one of two errors, you could not try a new thing, and that makes it so that the new thing that would have been a lot better would have given you valuable resources, whatever, um, never gets discovered. Or you could be so eager to try out a new thing that you know you get poisoned and die, <laughs> like you know, right. first person who ate a tomato or whatever, you know. Um, and uh there we think there are just emotional systems in people that lead them nudge them in one way to either be more on the safe don't take new risks and that means don't try new things uh versus the let's go out and explore let's do new things that nobody's ever done before um, side of of the psychological domain that might lead them to different sides of the political spectrum that's not all that's not the only reason why but obviously
0: well now that so, given that we know that emotion, uh, or, 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 or these like primitive emotions like disgust um, and anger, that that w- if we know that those are influencing moral judgments, does that mean that that a lot of our moral judgments are just genetic or inherited in the sense that uh, you know it. it if 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 something as primitive as uh, some reaction in my gut that says that's disgusting affects moral judgment, maybe we shouldn't be like, should we even consider trying to address that? I mean, it's kind of like uh, like physical attractiveness. You know, if someone says, "Well, this is what I'm attracted to," it's like, no, you need right. to open your mind. It's like, oh wait, that's that's not a that's not a really valid way of of dealing with that feeling. Right. right. Uh, so. What, what is the, what is the uh, I mean, is, is this a kind of a, a, a too, too uh, high of a bar to hit in terms of trying to impact something that, that's so uh, hardwired?
1: Yeah, well, you know, luckily with human beings, um, it is the case that there's a lot of interplay between your, what we might call cognition and, and emotion. And in some cases, it's not so unreasonable to say, um, you know, you have some control over your emotional response. And so, uh, over, you know, a lot of what it means to grow up and, and mature and develop is the regulation of our emotional responses. Um, and so, so, for instance, suppose that you're just a really jealous person, but the truth is you have no reason to be. Um, you might act suspiciously all the time because you think that your partner is cheating on you, um, but they've done everything they can to show you that they're not you might want to say, well, like, I got to deal with this in myself. I have to really um, take some responsibility for my own emotional reactions. This, this approach, this thought that we can take some, some control over our, our own emotional responses when we're likely to feel them, how they influence our judgment, is a very old one. You know, this is something that Aristotle was talking about, like develop the right kinds of emotions in the right times um, through your life. That's what virtue is. For other things, like you point out, something like a disgust or who you're attracted to, it might be very hard. But that's why I think it's good. If, if there's anything that this work shows, it's, it's not that these emotions sometimes shouldn't influence our judgment, because sometimes they should. Sometimes it's really clear that, that anger is a good thing or you know, going back to fear. We don't want to eliminate the role of fear in our judgments, because then we'd step on snakes all the time. Um, but we should reflect on whether or not we really think that feeling disgust or feeling unattracted to somebody, um, should influence the various judgments that we make. And so I will admit to being super easily disgusted. I am high on disgust sensitivity and maybe unsurprisingly, I come from a long line of conservative people. Um, at some point I just, you know, I, I became convinced that this disgust should not influence how I view other human beings in a moral sense. And luckily, I don't have to like you or be attracted to you or, or you know, feel a certain way about you to know that you are morally valuable. This is something that, that I can arrive at by just my moral beliefs and my principles and thinking about what my priorities are, sort of like you said, when it came to the homeless problem in your community. <clears throat> You don't need to feel empathy for every single homeless person. You can sort of just say, like, "Hey, isn't it crazy that uh, through a lot of just lucky circumstances, I've ended up where I am in life, and these people have, through unlucky circumstances, have ended up where they end up?" Um, perhaps, perhaps I should treat them uh, in a certain way because they're but for the grace of God, go I, sort of thing. Um, you don't, you know, you don't need tender emotions for other human beings to realize that they're valuable uh, so so i think we should just reflect on the way that our emotions are get, making us perceive or judge people or acts or whatever and and a bit of reflection goes a long way
0: well that yeah that is a that's a great way to wrap up this conversation uh so you know n- next time next time you uh you're in public and you, you you feel you feel that visceral response to something <laughs> maybe maybe put a little uh, magnifying glass over it before you uh, before you make that judgment. Yeah uh, Thank you for joining me today. Uh, that th- this is one of uh, uh, one of the more interesting conversations I've, I've had uh, on the podcast. so thank you so much for uh, for taking time out of your day.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. This was very fun.
0: For more on David, check out his podcast, Very Bad Wizards, wherever podcasts are found, or visit www.verybadwizards.com. Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me at whydowedothatpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that?